The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's New York recording studio on a trip up to New York. Joining me here is Jessica Winter, who's a Slate senior editor. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Dan. And also joining us is Megan O'Rourke, a Slate culture critic. Hey, Megan. Hey. As with all audiobook clubs, if you are a person who cares about spoilers, listen after because like read the book and then listen to us because we will be spoiling. Although, as is often the case, it seems like the secrets of this novel are not so secret and the magic or lack thereof, depending on your take on it, is in the details. Department of Speculation is a, I sort of ended up thinking of it as a rock hard little fragment of a novel. It is about the journey of a marriage and the difficulties that that journey encounters. But it's also about the struggle to make art in the face of the travails of life. When I read it, I really, really wanted to talk about it with people. And I think a lot of people had that same response. In fact, during last month's podcast, when I said, oh, this is the novel that we're doing, Megan said, oh, I I just read that and I really want to talk about it. But now that we are here talking about it, it's also sort of hard to figure out exactly where to start because it's a novel that invites a lot of thinking, but is also a little bit resistant to interpretation, at least for me. But so I do know that some of the things we'll talk about today are about the book's structure, which is a little bit odd, about the narrator's difficult balancing of family love and the desire to make things, to make art, to write, about the betrayal that transforms the novel, which is the sort of the big point at which the novel turns from a plot standpoint. And also, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of ginger way that the book explores something approaching mental illness, although I wouldn't quite exactly put it that way. But we'll also hit lots of other topics. But let's definitely start with the structure, which I think is maybe the easiest way into explaining what this book really is. It's made up of numerous short fragments. I don't think any of them are longer than a page. The book itself is very small, only about 180, 190 pages. Most of these fragments are just a couple of sentences at most. They make a narrative. It is a narrative that you can follow, but that narrative is frequently interrupted. I mean, like on every page, it's interrupted by notes or observations or sort of little stand-up comedy riffs or whatever. Megan, what do you think that this kind of structure lets a writer do that maybe a more traditionally written narrative doesn't? To me, that structure is the book in some sense, you know, and I'm a sucker for this kind of novel. I I really love Renata Adler's two novels, Speedboat and Pitch Dark, which I think were kind of models for this in a way. I think what it does is it, you know, I mean, it's sort of the message is the medium, right? This structure it's elliptical. It's at times lyrical. There's a lot of white space between different discrete moments. What this really is about for me as a reader is the writer trying to find a way to represent the narrator, the speaker of this, thinking her way through a situation that is in some way is impossible to, to think your way through. Yeah, um, a number of different situations. A number of different situations. Yeah. And what I was going to say is not only the potential dissolution of a marriage, but frankly, life. And also, really importantly, and almost as much of a, a subject of this book as the possibility of divorce that hangs over this couple is the crisis brought upon the, the narrator by not making art after the birth of her child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having these two things that you passionately love 
your child and your desire to be an artist. And one of my favorite parts of the book, and one thing I've heard a lot of people talk about is a section where she talks about wanting to be an art monster right. and how women are never art monsters. And as a poet, I often have this thought only without the awesome phrase art monster in it. <laughs> but I often think about um, this mathematician, Paul Erdős, whose wife would like butter his toast for him. Like if she brought him toast that wasn't buttered, he would be like, where's the butter? <laughs> and he actually didn't know how to butter toast. And I thought, I wish I lived in a world where I don't know that I wish that. Anyway, point being, this is a mind thinking its way through crises. And it's very much, I think, a form that draws attention to its own kind of incompleteness and messiness and doesn't promise a false tidiness, right? Doesn't promise false understanding. And that is really, really powerful. Clearly, one of the ideas of this novel is that the messiness of life cannot be remedied by the making of art, no matter how much you want it to be. And so the form echoes that, right? And, and you know, reading interviews with Jenny Ophill, she was working on this novel for a long time, and it was a more traditional narrative for a long time. But then at some point, she sort of scrapped that and just started writing on index cards. And she would carry index cards around with her. And when something hit her, she would write it. And that would be one of these little sections of the novel that we then get. And I have this, I don't know if this is the way it worked, but I have this marvelous image of her with all these index cards, like Winona Ryder and Reality Bites, where they all blow all over the place. And then she assembles them together. And she's like, I guess this is it. <laughs> Jessica, what? So when you were going through this, did you find that that structure propelled you through? Did you ever find yourself feeling lost or feeling like, where is this novel going or why is it doing this to me? No, I never felt lost. I felt borne along on the tide of the narrator's thoughts. Like Megan said, you really feel as though you're sharing in her thinking through her art, her station as a mother, her station as a wife. Her station as her marriage is threatened. You always feel as though you're with her, you're inside her own mind, and her own mind is as, you know, discursive <laughs> and randomized and wandering in it in the paths that it takes as as any other, certainly of mine. It's really crucial, I think, to talk about the turn yeah. that the book takes maybe at the halfway point, where the I and the my husband and my child turns into the wife and the husband and the child, this dissociation that kind of breaks the book in two is really crucial as well. You still feel as though you're with her, but she has sort of literalized the way that she's writing through this, how apart and how alienated she feels from what is very much happening to her <laughs> and yeah. possibly destroying her marriage and her entire conception of herself, which is bound up in her, her marriage. It also, as a writer, I was like, aha, this is how you're going to solve the trick of the end. And I was like, I bet at the end we're going to come back to the I, which is in fact mm -hmm. what happens in the very last section. We yeah. come back not to an I, but to a we. Because mm -hmm. this is a novel in some sense without an ending, because it doesn't want to promise. And then they all lived happily ever after, you know, even though there are some resolutions that I'm sure we'll talk about. It's kind of like almost stops in medias res. So she has this really clever formal solution, which is to be like, we are together. And of course, there's a he and a you and a, a dot, a child. And, and an they I. get a puppy. And they get and a they puppy. Get a puppy. That definitely they did solves live everything. all happily ever. <laughs> well, I mean, it is interesting. Like when I got to that moment in the point of view switch, there's a more subtle point of view switch that I didn't notice the first time through, which is that at the beginning of the book, it's you and I. And then when they get married, it's the husband and I, or no, it's mm -hmm. the, it's, it's the, hu yes, the husband mm -hmm. and I. Mm -hmm. And then after the affair, it's the husband and the wife. wife. Yeah. So the she disappears. He has already disappeared in a way by becoming the husband. Yeah. She disappears when the betrayal occurs. Sorry. When I hit like that sort of big shift, it struck me as like, a, oh, this is a real kind of creative writing class kind of move. 
Mm-hmm. But at the in the end, it didn't bother me at all. Like it felt totally right and like the right thing to do. And you're right that as a narrative trick to get you to the end of that story, to bring this an unendable story to a close, it totally works. The other thing that the structure reminded me of, and this is a novel, I mean, it's very contemporary, not only in its attitudes towards, I think, marital relations and the way that families deal with each other and about money and life and art, but it's also very contemporary in its relationship with technology. And it's a novel where people... You know, it has a I can has cheeseburger joke in it, and it, it's a novel where people use computers. And so these sections, in addition to reminding me of index cards, sort of reminded me of tabs in a browser. Like, you know, the traditional stream of consciousness mode that I'm familiar with from the stream of consciousness that I've read is long paragraphs that move from one topic to another in a flowing fashion. But this isn't that. This is discrete ideas and moments that are brought up and thought and dwelled upon for a moment and then abandoned for the next thing in the same way that I click from tab to tab to tab in a browser. And I thought that that is what the structure did for me is it gave me the sense of a very modern mind at work puzzling through these life questions through a number of different seemingly unrelated ways of attacking them, but that when you put them all together, it like sort of represents, well, a day's worth of work thinking about Mm -hmm. this particular issue that she's trying to work through. Mm -hmm. And it accurately reflects the patchwork of her life and her labor. You know, she's tending to her child. She's teaching. She's trying to write. She has this terrible ghostwriting gig for who she calls the almost astronaut. And one of the reviews, I think it was James Wood in The New Yorker, very astutely pointed out that it's very telling that she's always referring to her terrible employer as the almost astronaut because she herself is at risk of becoming a ghost. She's the almost writer because, what, it's been 15 years Mm -hmm. or something since she's written her first book, which reflects Jenny Ophel's own gap between work. Her first novel was published in 1999. Right. And there's very easy, I mean, potentially deceptively easy to view this book as the solution to that particular problem, right? That we are reading the result of this narrator's Mm -hmm. struggle to write this book, even especially when at the end she complains that the novel she's working on just has too many crying scenes. (laughs) Well, I think in that sense, I would be shocked if the book is not pretty explicitly in dialogue with two predecessors that are formally very like it. So one is Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights, which is a book about the dissolution of her marriage from Robert Lowell and about very intelligent a thinking woman, so to speak. <laughs> kind of a crazy phrase. <laughs> Finally, um, a thinking woman. <laughs> but you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so to speak. Um, you know, this is written a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, someone who identifies her, with herself as sort of cerebral in certain ways and as someone bound up with her writing, also a writer. A novel that is fiction, but also was read in light of the autobiographical events that were happening at the the time, and is also kind of fragmentary and elliptical and lyrical in the ways that this is. And then also Renata Adler's um, particular, well, both Speedboat and Pitch Dark are about the dissolutions of relationships. And again, these cerebral women trying to make sense of that vulnerable self in relationship to that kind of more controlled cerebral self. So I think that it's really interesting and kind of almost explicit in the book. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Speedboat because I never read Speedboat. And I think it's a book that is a real touchstone for a lot of women readers in particular. And Department of Speculation feels in a way among many women I know to be a book that has the potential of being a similar kind of touchstone. I actually think one, and this gets to something I think is worth talking about, I think it's really different from Speedboat in a way that is actually very important. And that is that Speedboat, it has more of a coolness and a remoteness. And the character in Speedboat is much more concerned with political events and politics than this character is, probably partly because she is a mother of a young child. And so the book does reflect a little bit of that. I also feel like this 
this book really is, and I wonder what you guys think, it really was a book about heartbreak. I mean, we were talking a lot about form, but I found it incredibly painful to read, you know, as an exploration and excavation of long-term relationships. And whether or not your relationship is at all like their relationship, it doesn't matter. I think you just recognize those feelings of vulnerability, those feelings of like, what would it be like if your world suddenly kind of you know, this world that you take as your world, right? It's like your your home and your hearth suddenly kind of fell apart. It, it actually was making me think of Sharon Old's book of poetry that came out last year and won the Pulitzer because that was about suddenly discovering her husband of many years had had an affair and he leaves her. And both books have, for me, like a really unnerving sense of like, oh, right, these things that you sort of take for granted in your life, I mean, you don't, but you do, right? And yeah. she's, I felt like she was amazingly good. Like, I almost thought it worked better in the first half when it was less explicitly about that than in the second. But I wonder whether you guys found this unnerving and upsetting to read. Yes, I yes. found it extremely unnerving and upsetting <laughs> to read. So there's a section that you made me think of that is right near the beginning of the book. It's on page 16 that I'm going to read, which is about that sense of taking the way you view your family before anything goes wrong or when times are at their most normal. The reason to have a home is to keep certain people in and everyone else out. A home has a perimeter, but sometimes our perimeter was breached by neighbors, by Girl Scouts, by Jehovah's Witnesses. I never liked to hear the doorbell ring. None of the people I liked ever turned up that way. <laughs> and there's this sense, right, and for that entire first half of the novel, of an extremely almost unhealthily closed system mm -hmm. of this little family of three. And it's being attacked at all sides by mm -hmm. the people from without, by the mice in the house, by the bed bugs that mm -hmm. they have to fight with. But they persevere, right? It, I mean, even when she's like going half insane with mm -hmm. the stress of having just had a baby, something which definitely drives everyone completely insane and is drawn extremely well in this novel, they still are a unit that protect each other in a way that felt very, very, very familiar to me. And so the the unbelievably painful disillusion of that in the second half really hurt a lot. I mean, much more than things like this in novels usually hurt when I read them. Usually they are plot twists that you deal with, but in here they felt like a bunch of body blows that I kept taking. I think that's one of the reasons why I never thought of Speedboat even once when I was yes, reading Yeah, because it's totally different. It is totally different. <laughs> which is, yeah. I mean, on one level, which is ridiculous because Speedboat is obviously a precursor of this book. The, the vignette-like structure is obviously something that Jenny Ophel had in mind in, in writing this book. But the thing about Speedboat is that it feels safer. Like yeah. Renata Adler's protagonist has a bigger life. Like she's skiing in San Marites and then she's in Biafra <laughs> and then she's in Luxor and then she narrowly escapes war in Egypt and she's on the last plane out. And, yeah. you know, she has this big sprawling life and there are a lot of people yeah. in her life and there's just a lot going on. But that gives her a safety net in some way. And after a while in Department of Regulation, you just feel like there's no safety net. There's just this tiny little enclosed world. And you have such a strong sense of claustrophobia and loneliness simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The other book I read recently that made a big impression on me or books is um, the Carl Ova Knausgaard books. I don't know if you guys have read. My Struggle. My Struggle. Yeah. But, you know, totally different. I mean, like maximalist and expansive and all the ways that this is fragmented and shiny. But both books do this amazing thing that you were talking about, Dan, which is of getting so much of the texture of like the private everyday life thoughts you have yes. that, you know, when you sit down to write a great novel, you're like, this isn't the stuff of literature, but it actually is the stuff of literature and all the distractions and the way our brains work. And so I think that because it feels whether or not you've had the thoughts she had or the precise feelings she's had, you've had those kinds of moments 
of claustrophobia and loneliness in your own head. And she really captures that. I yeah. Thought, in, she in totally. Yes. And like, deep, and deep way, any reader who is a parent also will recognize like she gets new parenting in a way that I have never, ever, ever, ever read in a novel, like exact echoes of feelings that I and my wife had had when we had a zero to six month old are all over this book. And so I, I marked up this book reading it way more than, I mean, it's an extremely quotable book in general because it's somewhat aphoristic, but also there were just a lot of moments where I marked it with like a little exclamation point, which is the shorthand for, oh yes, I have felt this exact thing. <laughs> and so like one of the ones that I want to read is it's on page 30, right at the top of the page. And it's, there's a picture of my mother holding me as a baby, a look of naked love on her face. For years, it embarrassed me. Now there's a picture of me with my daughter looking exactly the same way. It is exactly correct about the way that your relationship with your parents and the way you view how they treat you changes completely when you have a kid and you suddenly understand what they have been going through all these years. Even the jokes in this are like the exact jokes that my wife and I have made to each other. That phrase, sleeping like a baby. Some blonde said it blithely on the subway the other day. I wanted to lie down next to her and scream for five hours in her ear. (laughs) It's like she has listened to the, like to the mordant, stand-up comedy routines that my wife and I were delivering to each other to keep (laughs) us from killing each other the first year our kids were alive. And also getting back to the idea of, you know, trying to be in this enclosed space and battening down the hatches in the outside world, there are constant incursions from just random strangers, whether it's the person on the train saying sleeping like a baby or people are always haranguing her about the the baby wearing a hat. Oh, yes. (laughs) And um, I can't remember who it is who says to her, you're going to have another child, right? Right. It's just like a it's another random stranger who just tells her, well, you you have to have another one. And she says, probably not. And the random stranger says, well, I think that's cruel. I mean, just the, <laughs> right. I'm not a parent myself, but I've heard from my friends about how, you know, by the time you're showing in pregnancy through, you know, getting the kid out of the house, you are now public property. Right. You are available for public mm-hmm. comment at any time. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. interested in that, too. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of that in there. I mean, one thing about this book is definitely that it's funny. I mean, I think that's part of what makes it work really well is that she does have this mordant, you know, kind of acerbic. At times, you know, I think she's very good at foreshadowing, too. You know, at the very end of the book, we know something is going to happen. We don't really know what. I mean, we know if we've read the reviews, but even mm-hmm. just reading the book. And then also, there's a quality to the the kind of wit and humor that does feel almost... And she makes references to moments of like mental instability or almost like slight, you know, like a sense of the world kind of being too much upon you, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that the way humor functions in this book is very, very powerful and what happens as the book goes on, as the marriage seems to fall apart or does fall apart for a time. That was something I admired a lot about how she was able to bring it off. So in that second half of the book, this little enclosed unit that we have witnessed in the first half gets struck with this calamity that we sort of knew was coming, which is that her husband has an affair with a fucking child, she calls her. And, you know, he closes himself off to her. They go to marriage counseling. She attempts to deal with this and process it. But all through this time, they're still living their lives and dealing with things. And Megan, you said you felt like the second half of the novel maybe wasn't even quite as effective as the first half of the novel in in sort of dealing with the perspectives of this marriage. For me, that second half was amazing in that this was something that luckily for me, I'm happy to say, I'm not familiar with. Like my family has not undergone this specific kind of struggle. Yet I still found myself recognizing the contours of relationships that are familiar to me and the way that this specific family dealt with this 
specific crisis. And so, you know, for example, the way that even though they were separated, it seemed like in some way, maybe even physically, that they would like meet up for marriage counseling. And sometimes they would both get there early and just hang out in the park beforehand. And he would smoke a cigarette and she would look at the trees and they would just hang out for a few minutes. The way that the fact of their years together and their comfort with each other, even when they're both furious at each other, it like inflects every moment, even of high drama and high passion, that they could be having these screaming fights, except for they would be having them whispering in bed because they didn't want to wake up their kid. Or, you know, that they, even at the end of the, the book, when they get better at having arguments, that sometimes they forget they're having, and one of them asks the other one if, they, if she wants a cookie. I love that moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really good. No, it's definitely really, I actually wasn't, I think I misstated that. I actually think it's very good at just, getting the portrait of a marriage in the second half, that's not so much what I meant. I mean, it's almost eerie, as you're saying, that way it captures something that is eerie about a relationship, which is the way someone is utterly familiar to you. And then you have those shocks where you look at them and you think, I have no idea what the inside of that person's head is actually like. Right. You're you know, a I feel like that's what this being. book does. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. whoa. But I, I think just for me, and this is a totally personal thing, because I was so drawn to the ellipticism of the first half, I found that formally a little more interesting and I knew less where we were going. And I loved the indirection and the uncertainty. And so the second half where it's a bit more, here's what's happening here, just to me, just wasn't as literarily thrilling. But mm-hmm. that's a very small quibble. I love this book. <laughs> I really love this book. And I think it's... You're it's not really, in trouble. It's cool. Yeah, no, I just want to say that because I feel like it's sounding more... And as you say, it really... It gets under your skin for that reason. So the other big struggle that is at the heart of this that you have alluded to already... Megan is the art monster question, right? Mm-hmm. So on top of everything else that this narrator is going through and dealing with, she is a writer. She is 15 years removed, as you said, Jessica, from her first novel, and she has a department head who's going tick-tock, tick-tock at her at parties about where that second novel is going to come from. And she talks a little bit about being an art monster. I'm actually going to so much passive aggression in this. In this oh yes, yeah. so it is a masterpiece of <laughs> masterpiece passive aggression. <laughs> um, but so let me actually read that art monster section because it has been widely quoted and reasonably so because it's. It's really one of the big things that the book is about. It's on page eight. And she says, my plan was to never get married. I was going to be an art monster instead. Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. Nabokov didn't even fold his own umbrella. Vera licked his stamps for him. So one of the transformations she goes through is the transformation from this image of herself as someone whose only purpose on this earth is to make art to make the beautiful novels that she always wanted to read to a person who then has a husband, to a person who then has a baby, and finds that her love for those things or her passion or anger at her husband later, it's not only that those things hold her back from making the art that she wants to make. It's that she loves those things so much that at times she doesn't even want to make the art that she still knows she wants to make. I mean, that's a totally fascinating struggle and one that is not unique necessarily to women, but is, I think, of particular relevance to women. This notion of the family as a thing that you don't want to give up, but you uh, can't. I actually never got the sense that she didn't want to make art. I didn't either. I actually read this power, incredibly painful to me because I don't have children, but one of the things I always think about is like, could I, you know, I don't think the desire to make art would ever go away from me. I think every day would be absolute agony. Every day, every day now when I can't write is just absolute agony. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true, especially as you get older. And so I never felt that there was any peace with it. I felt there was this incredible pressure and sense of 
despair and uncertainty. And then there's this great T.S. Eliot quote, and uncertainty in the most profound level, which is also as you get older, as someone who wants to make the kind of writing that no one is asking you to make in the sense that it's invented, you are like, what the fuck? Excuse me. What does this matter? You know, like, why does this need to be in the world? And if you have a child, right, that's very concretely needs to be fed and clothed and housed. She, you know, about two thirds of the way both through the book quotes this T.S. Eliot quote, which I totally understand the quote in context. And she says, what T.S. Eliot said, when all is said and done, the writer may realize that he has wasted his youth and wrecked his health for nothing. Mm -hmm. But then I think we also are meant to think, of course not. But then the writer keeps writing because mm -hmm. here's the evidence of it, right? Here are the index cards shuffled and rearranged. And right after that comes a passage about the daughter where the daughter has told the narrator, she will not go to college if that means she must go away from me. When she has a baby, she will come and stay with me for a month and I will help her care for the baby. And then she will go away for one day. Then she will come back again and stay for a month or a year. She does not ever want to live away from me. She explains, promise, I say. She curls up in my arms, all elbows and knees, promise. I thought that was such a great example of the artful juxtapositions in this book where both of those are about like dilemmas in selfhood, right? Like the daughter is saying now, this is what I want. I always want to be with you. And there's some part of the daughter that probably always will have that daughter self. But later, the daughter is going to want to be away from her mother, right? In the same way, you know, the narrator probably thinks, what is the point of making this? You know, you, you do it and you realize you wreck your life. But then at the same time, you go on and try to make it, right? So I thought those paradoxes were so just beautifully and painfully. I also got the sense here. just on a super prosaic level that they needed money. You yeah. Know, her husband goes from making, what are they, soundscapes mm -hmm. to, you know, a, a much more prosaic job scoring music for commercials. That's not what he wants to be doing. We don't really get to see inside his head very much, but we know that he's having maybe not a crisis on the level of her crisis, but he certainly made a creative sacrifice somewhere on the order of the creative sacrifices that she's, she's making. making. And, you know, she's making all these piecemeal decisions to take this job here and this job there and, you know, sitting down to the much more immense work of writing a second novel, um, not even a first novel, a second novel, you know, following <laughs> up the, the apparently, you know, at least somewhat successful first novel. You could see how she would just put it off and put it off and put it off and have, as Megan said, you know, very concrete, desperately loved reason for putting it off and putting it off. Right. And, you know, the teaching that almost and that's part of why the almost astronaut stuff is so poignant, as you were saying, because there's this kind of almost sense to her yeah. work. Right? Yeah. The title Department of Speculation, like I had this very trite reading of that the first time I read the book, which was, you know, the idea that you're always speculating about the people you're closest to, mm. that like an entire marriage is a department of speculation. Mm. You know, you've you've made all these presumptions and projections onto the other person. And then one God, day- God, I hope it isn't trite because that's basically what I thought. <laughs> but right. I also, but it's, but it's, also it's a bet, bet right? Yep. It's a, a very risky uh, financial yeah. transaction. Like... But I think it's also like, it's a speculation about her future as an artist mm -hmm. and if she is an artist anymore, mm -hmm. which is something that she can only speculate. Right. I think that is actually really interesting, too, because it's her future as an artist and her marriage. Right. So like both are speculation to make a novel is a is a kind of speculation, right? Because you're putting all your eggs in this one basket. Mm -hmm. It has to be like no one thing and no one's asking you to. And I also always am like, and it's long. Yeah. Like you have to spend a lot of time making it. It's not like one painting or one, right. you know. Yeah. But in a marriage is like that, right? Like a marriage is like a novel. That's why novels were always marriage plots, right? I mean, in marriage is this long thing. You put all this stuff into it and then it's like, 
like, oh, if it doesn't work, wow. That really was like a huge investment of your energy and your and your life and your and your heart right, right. that you can't get back and, and if something goes horribly wrong halfway through your marriage like your novels then there's everything has to change i mean yeah. it's reflected in the actual structure of this book yeah. right like the book echoes that particular moment at which you realize that everything you thought was one way is not that way at all i want to ask a little bit about this is something else we touched on briefly before but there is this sense which accelerates as the novel goes on and the marriage gets worse and worse and worse of her really struggling with with emotional difficulties and even in some sense i think mental illness or at least mental tumult she has a sense that she wants to maybe go to the hospital at some point but she can't because she feels it will be held against her in the future and there's that line where she says that all the objects in her house bristle menacingly just after she's visited a suicidal student of hers in the hospital who's just attempted suicide did you guys feel like You know, there are so many ways in which we know everything about this character, in which this character is crystal clear and transparent to me. But this felt like it was something where there was a history behind it that I didn't quite understand and a sense in which she was battling things that she didn't give us access to, unlike almost everything else in her life that she gave us painful access to. Do you feel like I was just missing stuff or was there something there that you guys could not quite get access to either? I mean, I definitely had the sense that that was a slightly more shaded part of the book. But I actually didn't have the sense that you had of I knew this person. I actually Mm -hmm. felt the whole thing with its kind of – it was limpid but elliptical in a way that made me feel I was getting these like moments of like contact with another selfhood um, that were really intense and sharp but not necessarily – believe I fully knew this person. Like, mm-hmm. I could feel that that they were keeping things to themselves. So, I mean, I definitely think that it's a little more elliptical, the illness stuff, which I was fine with. I mean, it seemed like to do more than that might have let it take up. I mean, it seemed like a kind of almost nervous breakdown or, you know, what they would have once called a nervous breakdown or a sense of, you know, real dissociation, I think, was the word that you were using, Jessica, which makes sense. There's a sense of, like, profound dissociation and to go too much further into that would have turned it into a really different book, it seemed to me. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jessica? This is a relevant package from when she goes to visit Leah in the hospital, her her student who has bandaged wrists and has apparently um, attempted suicide. It's on page 106. She's talking about that hospital in Westchester. Everyone there won't do something. There's a small flock of dull-eyed girls who hate to eat, who hide measuring spoons in their coats and leave clumps of hair in the sink. And then there are the ones who never answer questions, no matter how many different ways you ask them. Sleep is the one thing Leah won't do. She never sleeps unless they drug her, but she never rings the call button in the middle of the night either. I just wait for first light, she says. I watch the window. This is how the wife gets through the nights, too, but she doesn't tell her this. And I thought this was an interesting passage because you don't know, or at least I didn't know, whether the wife is drawing a line between herself, where she's Mm -hmm. on the edge of something, but she's not tipping over the edge and looking over that edge at the people who have actually tipped over it. Like, you know, I am here and you are there. Or if she was underlining the closeness that she felt toward these people who had tipped over the edge and and wondering if she was already there. And she happened to be looking for first light out a different window, but it was the same scene. I thought that was really rich and suggestive and and didn't explain it. Yeah. I think that's a great passage to point to because also it puts me in mind of the fact that like, 
one imagines that experience is the experience of not ever knowing which side of the line you're on, yeah. right? right, for a while. And then at some point, obviously, right, or it's like beginning to get sick, for example, you're like, am I, am I not, right? Um, so I, that is really, I think that's exactly the moments where her technique works so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you guys think of the end of the book? We talked about it a little in the shift, right, the shift back to the first person and second person in the I and you. I felt as though it was like deeply satisfying for me, mostly because I had invested so much emotionally in this family. And even though there were things about each one of the pair of this marriage that bothered me, had essentially become like extremely close friends, except for that they don't know I exist, but that is how I felt about them. <laughs> and I was really invested in like this thing working out, at least for now. But at the same time, I was really afraid of how this novel would end. I, too, like you, Megan, sensed that that formal trick might play a part in it, which suggested some kind of reconciliation. But I didn't want them to live happily ever after with or without a puppy. And so <laughs> I found myself really amazed at how she finessed this landing. And I don't even quite understand how she did it. Well, this book has a really great last line, which I'll spoil since everyone listening has already read the book. Go for is, it. No one young knows the name of anything, which is as elliptical and mysterious last line as, as any given line in the book. But to me, it, it indicated in as uncheesy a way as possible the possibility of starting over and finding some fragment of yourself that is still young or something. I didn't think she stuck the landing, but I don't know how she could have stuck the landing <laughs> yeah. because she's trying to stick a landing where it's like this terrible thing happened and we're coming together as a family. We moved to the country and we got a puppy and we're going to try. Mm -hmm. And that is a landing worth trying to stick, uh, yeah. even if you can't quite do it. I'm not entirely sure she knew how to end the book, but that did not dilute the fondness and the admiration that I have for the book. I think you stuck the landing in talking about the end of the book. <laughs> that's what I would, that, no, I think that's right. And, you know, I think just that the writing gets, you know, she lets the writing kind of do the work for her and that line is really fabulous. And it also really underscored for me one thing I'd been thinking about, which is that this book is about becoming middle-aged in a time when none of us think of ourselves as being middle-aged or on the verge of middle-age, right? That moment when you're like, I can't do it over. I have gone from being the girl embarrassed by my mother's love to the mother, mm -hmm. as you were saying, Dan. You know, so You've much gone of this from being the boy pure right, of heart you know, to right, exactly yeah. to being like, oh, you know, because there's a great line about this boy pure of heart who's kind of like, you know, looking around at the dinner party where everyone's made certain accommodations and kind of, you know horrified by it and she's like you can't knock it till you've right. lived those years. You are years, not allowed right? to compare your imagined accomplishments to our actual yeah, ones. Our actual ones, right? <laughs> and I think that is probably something that in maybe our generation, the generation before the baby, I mean that's one of the dominant experiences for, you know, middle class, upper middle class in the West, right? Is the sense of like the possibilities that are out there for you that you're raised to believe, the things you can accomplish and then the slow narrowing to the actual life lived, the days drifting behind you and the actual marriage, the actual children. And that was what made this book really powerful for me, right? It's like this thing happens. It's not part of anyone's life plan. And like what actually takes place? What are the particulars of it? And then even the little kind of catty social comments, like the woman who's like, I saw see a famous artist, you know, a well-established artist at a opening, and she was with her also very successful husband. And then someone says, how was she? And they say, oh, she was radiating with rage, <laughs> right? And you're just like, you've seen that couple and you've seen, you know, and so it is a kind of terrifying, um, you know, look at the companionate marriage or whatever it's called, too. But I think it's really about aging and yeah. 
and trying to age with some piece of your heart that's still pure. What is the companionate marriage? I've seen that phrase you know, a lot, but and people use it like you're supposed to know, and I don't know. Well, you know, know it's actually, as I said it, I was like, cause I just read something which made me realize that I had been using it all these years, and we all do incorrectly. There was some article in the New York Times recently that basically was like, companionate marriage was an earlier version of the marriage. We now have some other kind of marriage. But oh, everyone okay. uses companionate marriage to mean post-second wave feminist to you know, trying to have two equal partners basically be like friends and lovers and equal shareholders, right? Okay. That's how people use it. Apparently, that's not actually correct. Oh, okay. So now that I've used it, we should just unuse it. Well, what's what's the correct usage? <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> because it makes me think there's this line in an Alice Monroe story. I think it's the Children's Day where the couple uh, who have two small children and or who are sort of past the lusty height of their relationship and the wife is about to embark on a you know a marriage destroying affair sorry spoilers and there's this great line where the husband and wife their marriage still intact arrange themselves in a comradely position ah, and fall asleep right, right. and so whenever that's, i that see is the companion at marriage <laughs> so whenever i say companion at marriage i think okay so it's post sex <laughs> but that's totally well, wrong too we all too often it. right <laughs> But I think it's meant to be, right, the, the, in the round, uh, yeah. friend and lover as opposed to just domestic arrangement. Okay. Of... Megan, you're talking about the way that this book is about sort of the narrowing of options as you move forward. Reminded me of a section of the book, and I just went and looked at it, that I was like, oh, well, this is exactly like what Megan said. But in fact, it is, it's as if she took what she said and turned it inside out mm. to mean the same thing, but from the opposite angle. I love which that. Is, which is like, well, let me read it, and then I'll explain what I mean. Uh, it's page 102. How has she become one of those people who wears yoga pants all day? Oh, yeah. She <laughs> used to make fun passages. of those people <laughs> with their happiness maps and their gratitude journals and their bags made out of recycled tire treads. But now it seems possible that the truth about getting older is that there are fewer and fewer things to make fun of until finally there is nothing you are sure you will never be. Mm. So mm. I love mm. that. The con, the obverse, right, of this notion that your options for what you could be are narrowing is that the options for the things you thought you would never be, okay. but in fact you are turning into, into in your right. dotage, are like Expanding. endless. <laughs> uh, and so this is a book about both those things. Like yeah. that's really, I think that's really an amazing. It's an amazing two different, unbelievably depressing ways to look at getting old. Yeah, or or not depressing too, because right, I do think she finds a certain. I think that's what the end does. And as as Jessica was saying, it's like. It's a tricky thing to walk because she doesn't want to be sentimental or too tidy because she wants to show the, the body scarred but beautiful kind of, you know, like the marriage mm -hmm. broken but present. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very real to this period of life that she's describing. And it's a tricky thing to do formally. And I think she did find a, a, a good way to do it. All right. Well, thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Megan, for joining me for this discussion of Ginny Ophel's Department of Speculation, which is totally great. And if you haven't read it already, I mean, we just spoiled everything, but you should definitely go read it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. A program note, our next audiobook club selection is Americana, a novel by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie about a Nigerian woman who comes to the United States for college. Please check it out, read it or listen to it, and then join us for our next discussion, which we'll post on June 6th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. 
please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. It also helps you listen to the show when it magically downloads to your audio player. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. Don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Jessica Winter and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.